Father Almighty, we give thanks for uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, how good it is. Your law is beautiful, and your word is true, and it is eternal. Uh, And it is also active. It is not something we come to, Lord, simply to learn, but to be changed by. So may you change us this morning as we learn. May you grow us in our understanding and our love and our desire to obey and to follow you. Out of gratitude for what you've done. Lord, thank you. Bless the meditations of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we've been talking about covenant theology. Big surprise. But just a little bit of review before we uh, pick up from where we left off last week. Um, We've been looking at covenants through uh, a a couple of big picture lenses. Um, Part of that is because if we just get into all the weeds and details, we'll kind of lose what the point is. Um, So one of the big points that we've been talking about is how the Lord is unfolding his plan of salvation. So the very beginning of, of the class and a few first lessons, we talked about the covenant of redemption, um, which is the covenant that the Trinity made within itself um, to save the elect, right? It was a plan of salvation that God ordained before time where he said, I'm going to create. And then Jesus agreed, right, to become man, to come into the world, um, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, all for the sake of the elect. So there's a there's a purpose, right? There's a plan in in place for all of history. And so the covenants that we are learning about throughout Scripture are the the historical. Um, they're they're growing out of the covenant of redemption into history. So these are the little contact points, right, between history and the grand plan that God has, where God is unveiling his plan and showing progressively more and more and more what he's going to do. Um, It would have been enough, you know, in one sense, to just have Genesis 3.15, to have a promised seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent, his heel is going to be bruised, right? That That is the core of the gospel, Um, the core of the covenant of grace. But every further covenant begins to unfold more and more of this plan. Um, And so we've been looking at kind of the second big picture is, okay, how does each covenant teach us more about the promised seed? We have questions, right? You start to read about this promised seed and you have a question. Well, what happens if um, the serpent tries to kill the promised seed? Or what happens if, you know, Cain kills Abel? What will happen to the lineage of the promised seed? Uh, What will happen if God destroys the world with a flood again? Or if mankind's wickedness increases again? So the Noahic Covenant answered the question, well, what will happen? God will protect. He will provide the the boundaries, right? He will establish creation so that it won't be moved, that it won't be destroyed, not until the last days. Um, So that gives us the confidence to know that he will keep his promises. And then we talked about how the Abrahamic covenant answers the question, well, from whom is the promised seed going to come? Right? We know he will at some point, but it could be anyone from anywhere. But now God narrows it down and says it's going to be from Abraham and through Isaac. Right? Through Abraham and through his son Isaac. And so we've been looking at the Mosaic covenant for the last, I don't know, six or seven decades. And we're going to look at it for another six or seven decades. And we ask the question, well... We know who the promised seed is going to come from, but we don't know much about what he's going to do. We don't know what it means that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. We don't know what it means that his heel is going to be bruised. We don't know what kind of person he's going to be like. Um, so the Mosaic Covenant starts to put answers to those questions. Um, and we, we put, I think, our first concrete answer to that question last week. Um, does anyone remember what that concrete answer was? 
What's the promise seed going to do? What was our, our first solid answer? That the Mosaic Covenant teaches us. That we talked about last week. Seven days ago. Which is not that long. Keep the law perfectly. Thank you, Marge. Yeah, the promise seed is going to keep the law perfectly. That's the number one, not number one, but that is the first concrete answer that we get from the Mosaic Covenant. So we know, right, that the Mosaic Covenant is not, mankind, humans, are not capable of keeping it. We saw how the laws of Moses, right, it was meant to push Israel, not to themselves, not to their own obedience. It was meant to show them how, how flawed they were, how sinful and broken they were, so that they would be pushed to someone who could do it for them, someone who was perfect. Um, so when Jesus came, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. Instead, I came to fulfill them. Right? And he's talking big picture, but also narrowly. He's talking about all of the scriptures. He comes to fulfill them. But he's also talking about he, how he is going to keep the law, that not a single part of it um, will be done away with until it's accomplished. And then on the cross, he said, it's finished. His work they came to do was finished. Um, he had kept the law perfectly from the beginning of his life until the end of it. He had not sinned even once. And that meant that he earned all the blessings, right? All the blessings that you get from keeping the law, he earned them. And yet, he endured all the curses at the same time. Because the curses of the Mosaic Covenant were really centered around expulsion from the land and really being expelled from God's presence. It was really about being separated and exiled from God. That was the curse for disobedience. Jesus endured that. Right? The cross is separation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so we've said, right, that this promised seed, who knows Jesus, is going to keep the law perfectly. Um, and we'll start to unpack that even more uh, as we start to talk about what the law is. But there's a couple of things that the Mosaic Covenant teaches us about the promised seed. A couple of things that the promised seed is going to do. Um, and the first one, so this is another concrete answer. What is the promised seed going to do? He's going to be a mediator. What is the promised seed going to do? He's going to be a mediator. Does anyone remember what a covenant mediator does? We talked about this two, two months ago, a while ago. But we talked about mediators and we talked about, yeah, Jonathan, do you remember? I'm pretty, well, I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure that a mediator is something that like binds two, two or more covenants together. Not quite. No. Anyone else? Do you remember what a mediator does? The go-between or the representative or the, the human side of the equation. Okay, a representative. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good starting point. Um, is there any difference between a covenantal mediator or a biblical mediator and maybe... What we would think of a mediator in, in modern terminology or in modern or modern day language, Jonathan. So, in a modern sense, a mediator is typically like a 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good way of thinking about it, right? In modern day thought, you have, a mediator is, is someone who's coming in to resolve a dispute between two parties. They're a neutral party. They're, um, they're not involved in the dispute, but they come in to help resolve a dispute and to fix the problem, right? They're trying to help two different parties reach a compromise. That's, that's our modern day definition of a mediator. But that's not what the Bible means when it calls Jesus a mediator. Um, a mediator in the covenantal term is someone who acts on behalf of those he is representing. So he is not neutral. He is for a certain party. Um, he is, even more so, he is the responsible party because he's a representative. Right? He is the one that has the responsibility to act on behalf of the people he's representing. So if he does well, the people he's representing receive the, the rewards for his actions. If he does badly, the people he's representing receive the, the curses for his, uh, for his actions. So think about Adam. Right? Adam was a mediator because if Adam obeyed, all of his offspring, whom he was representing, would be blessed. And if he disobeyed, all of his offspring, who he was representing, would be cursed. And lo and behold, he disobeyed, and all of his offspring, us, the human race, was cursed um, in Adam because he was their mediator. He was their representative. Um, so if you want to find out who's, a, who's the mediator of a covenant, all you have to do is ask yourself, well, who's responsible Who's responsible to fulfill the obligations? And you'll find out who the mediator is. I think the picture of David and Goliath represents that very well. How so? Well, it, you know, Goliath is kind of you know, taunting Israel, saying, you know, if you can beat me, I will. If, if one of your men can beat me, oh, I will be your servant. Yeah. If, if I beat them, then you'll be my servant. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and with David and Goliath, uh, David was the representative for Israel. If he failed, Israel would be enslaved. And if he won, uh, the Philistines would be enslaved. So was there a mediator in the Mosaic Covenant? So two people have said Moses. Anyone else have any thoughts? Michelle? I, I want to agree, but the people agreed to the covenant too. They said, we will fulfill this, and they did ceremonial things. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. You're, you're on to something there. Israel did say four or five times, all of that you have said, we will do. And in the covenantal, what's the word, um, institution ceremony in Exodus, Moses splatters the people with the blood. Right? That means that the obligations are on them. Which is like 
with the Abrahamic covenant. Remember when they split the animals in two, and one of them walked through the bloody the through the blood and the entrails. It wasn't Abraham; it was God. The obligations were on God, not on Abraham. So God was, in a sense, <laughs> the mediator for Abraham. Um, so, in a sense, right, the blood was on Israel. The blood was not on Moses. The obligations, the, the responsibility was on Israel to obey the covenant, not on Moses. If it had been like Moses saying, I, all of this I will do, and Israel saying, yes, please do this for us, um, that would have been more like a biblical mediator. However, that being said, here's, here's where I'm pushing... Moses is not a mediator in the technical sense. He's not, he's not technically the mediator. However, he teaches us a lot about what a mediator is going to do, um, both in his negative example and his positive example. Because there's a reason why, when you ask that question, was there a mediator, your mind jumps to Moses. Because Moses does a lot of mediatorial things. Um, so, for instance, right, as a negative example, he's not a very good mediator because he's impulsive, right? he's strong-willed, he's stubborn. Um, he's the one who hit the rock when God told him just to talk to it. Uh, he's the one who killed the Egyptian when he should have waited. He's the one who, you know, warred with God at the, uh, at the burning bush, if you remember those sermons on, on Exodus. Moses didn't go to Egypt you know, skipping and joyfully and saying, yeah, I can't wait to do God's will. He went to Egypt like, fine, fine, I'll do it. But it wasn't until after God said, or God came to kill him, and his life was spared by the circumcision of his son, that Moses' attitude started to change. Um, but then again, he also acts as a positive example. Right? In Exodus 32, um, after the whole golden calf debacle, Moses comes to God and says, blot out my name instead of Israel's. Right? He is also, he's the one who goes up the mountain of God on Israel's behalf. Israel says to Moses, go, you go up the mountain. We can't, we're too afraid. But you go talk to God for us. He's the one who talks to the Lord for the people. He's the one who, who stands between God and the people. Um, and ultimately... He's the one who dies outside of the land because of Israel's disobedience. Because in Deuteronomy 1, uh, Moses says, Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there, meaning the promised land. Like now, it's, that's a little complicated. It's partly Moses' own fault. But it's also the fact that Moses dies outside of the land because of Israel's disobedience. So in some senses, right, he is not technically the mediator because it's not on, it's, the obligations are not on him to fulfill the covenant on Israel's behalf. And yet he does a lot of mediatorial things because he's teaching us what the promised seed is going to do. He's going to be a mediator in all the perfect ways, in all the positive ways, and in none of the negative ways. He's not going to be stubborn. He's not going to be strong-willed. He's not going to be um, uh, impulsive. He's not going to, you know fight with the Lord, he's going to do God's will. He's going to be perfect. 
but he's also going to be the one who stands between the people and God. He's going to be the one who receives the wrath of God on Israel's behalf. He's the one who will die because of our, our sin, our disobedience. So a couple of, there's a verse that shows us that Israel, right, the, the consequences and the obligations on Israel. It's Exodus 24, 6 through 8. Moses took the blood, half the blood put it in basins, half the blood he threw against the altar. He took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. And then Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we start to see, right, that in the Mosaic Covenant, the blood is splashed on the people. They are responsible. Not like the Abrahamic, where the blood was only on God. So Moses, even though he's not Israel's true mediator, he teaches us a lot about why they need a mediator and what a mediator is going to do and what the promised seed is going to do. So 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we have a mediator. right? The, the blood of the covenant was, is splashed on Jesus. The responsibilities, the obligations, fall on Christ. Which means that he is the one who dies on our behalf. He is the one who acts on our behalf as well, so that when he obeys, it's as though we have obeyed. And thus, Paul can say in Colossians, or uh, um, in 2 Corinthians, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He's the mediator. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. That's what a mediator does. Any uh, thoughts or questions before we... Move on from from that. So, are you saying that the people were the mediator? I'm saying that there wasn't a technical mediator between Israel and God. It's like with Adam, right? Who was responsible to fulfill the covenant? Israel. However, there's things going on in the Mosaic covenant that it's not like with Adam in in the way that. Israel is not going to earn eternal life. The Mosaic Covenant is law-serving grace. Right? Their, their responsibility to keep the covenant is only meant to point them to Christ. It's only meant to point them to the fact that they have no hope then. Because if eternal life depends on their obedience, they are, they are in a whole heap of trouble. Just like us. Just like us. Yeah. Which is why Paul is like... Why do you want to go back to the Mosaic Covenant? Why do you want to go back and try to keep the law? You, that's curse. There is no life found in trying to keep the law on your own behalf. Okay, well, um, let's move on to talk a little bit more about uh, the law as we find it in the Mosaic Covenant. Because this is a big topic. Um, I've made a lot of general statements, right? I've said that the, the promised seed is going to keep the law perfectly, um, but that's a very general statement. And the Mosaic Covenant has a lot of law in it. There's a whole book or two devoted to what is the law that Israel is to keep, right? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, even um, those chapters in Exodus 
between nine, uh, 19 and 24 um, talk about the laws and the meaning of these laws. There's, there's quite a few of them. So there's, it's good to start to talk about what they are, why there's different categories, the significance, and how we relate to them, and how they teach us about Jesus. Um, so before we, before we jump for, completely into that, I just want to hit a couple of things as kind of the foundation of the law. The first is that, we've already said it, right? the Mosaic Covenant is law-serving grace. That the law, as it's given in the Mosaic Covenant, is meant to teach us about who God is, to show us his grace, to lead us deeper into Christ, and also to show us what, is, what does it look like to live a God-honoring life. Um, but not to earn merit, right? But in gratitude for what the Lord has done through Christ. Um, so there's a lot that we can learn from the law. Um, and the Psalms talk a lot about how good the law is, about how beautiful God's law is, about how the... The psalmist takes delight in the law of God. Um, so hopefully we start to learn to start to take delight in God's law as well. That even though it shows us our sin, it shows us how high the standard is, it also is teaching us how, how holy God is um, and how beautiful his law is. So that's kind of some of the big things I want to keep in mind. Um, because really the law teaches us who God is. It shows us who God is. It's God's character put down as commandments. So just so we're keeping our terms clear, um, the Bible can often mean different things when it says law. Sometimes when it says the law, it refers to the five books of Moses, um, which is Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. These are traditionally called the law by the Israelites. And then the prophets were all the prophets, right? All the writings of the prophets. And then you had uh, the writings, which was Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So these three categories made up the Hebrew Bible, right? You had the law, you had the prophets, and you had the writings. So sometimes the Bible means... The five books of Moses, when it says the law. Sometimes it means the Mosaic Covenant, specifically. Paul will sometimes refer to the entire Mosaic Covenant with everything that comes attached to that as law or the law. Uh, For instance, in Galatians, you can read Galatians and see him referring to the law a lot of times, and he's referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Um, But sometimes it it means those laws that were given at Sinai specifically. Or other times, it, the Bible can use the word law just to refer to um, the eternal laws of God, right? Not Sinai specifically, but what we would call the moral law. For instance, when it says that God will write his law on our hearts. So right now, we're going to talk about the law, meaning the laws given at Sinai, especially which are those that are found in Exodus 19 through 24. Um, those chapters are called the, the Book of the Covenant. So in these few chapters, Exodus 19 through 24, um, these are the laws given at Sinai that, that teach Israel what does it mean, um, what is this covenant about, what are the laws of God. So does anyone know what kinds of laws were given at Sinai? What kinds of laws did God command? Okay, moral law, summarized how? In the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments. So that's one of them, right? That's one category 
of law that was given at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Ceremonial. ceremonial. What do you mean by ceremonial? Um, by that, the types of ways they were to worship God, <coughs> and what that would look like, I guess, to clarify the difference between holiness and sinfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so ceremonial law is how shall you worship, and has to do with the difference between holiness and commonness. Yeah, Kylie? Um, there's a lot about um, how you are to treat others that are wrong you or how you treat your slaves. Um, and that's actually especially in the Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole lot about how are you to treat other humans, right? specifically your, your neighbors in the land of Israel. Uh, we call that the civil law because it has to do with civil society. How is the Israelite society going to function? Yeah, those are the three main categories. You have the moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. You have the ceremonial law. Um, An example would be Exodus 20, verse 25. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. That's a, a, a ceremonial law. You know, the meaning of it can be sometimes unclear. But the point is, here's how you shall worship me. And if you do it any other way... You've, you've messed up. Right? You have to worship God in this specific way. Um, and then civil law. Dietary laws. Right, but that, that actually falls under a certain category. Right? There's dietary laws, but what did that have to do with? Clean and unclean. Clean and unclean. Yeah, that's a ceremonial law. You can't come and worship God if you're unclean or if you've eaten the unclean animals or touched an unclean thing. So the ceremonial laws teach us there's a difference between holiness and commonness, between clean and unclean. If you want to come worship God, you have to be clean and holy. And we'll talk about, um, we'll start to talk about those things as we get into the specifics. And that would, the ceremonial law would also include the sacrificial laws. Uh, and then, yeah, civil law, like Kylie pointed out. So Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And so the Lord saying, here's, here's how civil society is going to work. If someone comes and steals your cow and they get caught or they kill it or sell it, they have to repay five cows for that one cow. So let's talk big picture before we start to move into specifics of each category and what they mean, what are, what are the Lord's primary concerns in his law? What is he primarily concerned about or concerned with? That's a primary concern. Right? You shall not be like the nations. You shall be a holy nation. Here's what that looks like. Cleanliness, dietary laws, worship. Don't worship like the pagans. Right? Don't eat like the pagans. Don't dress like the pagans. Don't talk like the pagans. All these things are separation laws. Yeah, God's concerned with that. What else is the Lord concerned with that his law shows us? John? We have to keep them. He's concerned that we obey. 
which means they're not they're not arbitrary. There are things in that His law are showing us, right? These are God is not just giving laws for the, for the heck of it. Every one of them, whether you know they're easy to understand or not, is teaching us something about God's character, about who He is. Um, so they they matter, Dave. Um, God gave His law. Mm-hmm. So what's what's that pointing to? What's his primary concern then? Um, that his people would look to him for salvation rather than trying to work out themselves. That they would see their need. That they can't fulfill the law. They can't live um, perfectly to that law. So it's it's to show them what what they're not able to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in one sense, the Lord is concerned that they they don't take his law and use it as a means to, to save themselves. Okay? Got it? I think it also shows God's love through the way he um, talks about the order and justice in the civil law, too, where um, he's very clear with what is right and what is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God is very concerned about justice. Especially for um, anyone who is vulnerable. Right? There's a lot of laws about widows and orphans and sojourners, people who are typically exploited and hunted or vulnerable. He cares very much that they are protected and provided for. Um, he calls himself father of the fatherless and um, husband of the widow. He, he's very much concerned for their protection, for justice for the oppressed. Any other concerns of the Lord, primary concerns that we see in his law? Ben? His holiness. His holiness, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is both for God's protection and the people's protection. It's to keep his name holy, but also if, if people come to him when they're not clean, they will get destroyed. Right? That was the whole point of, this, of Sinai having a barrier around the mountain because if anyone broke through the barrier and touched the mountain, they were going to be obliterated. Jonathan? So, just a question. Mm-hmm. God says, well, in the Mosaic Covenant, God lays down this insanely strict law and it, descri- it describe each law describes his character. And with some of these, it's pretty obvious. Like, we've already told us God, God tells the church to take care of widows and orphans, and God calls himself father and fatherless and husband to the widow. But how do, the, how do other laws describe his character? Well, we've talked about a few, right? They could talk about his, his holiness, his separation, um, his desires for his people to be set apart. Um, Right, one, and even with father of the fatherless, fatherless father of the fatherless, um, that has two dimensions, right? One of that is justice, but the other side of that is compassion. That God is a compassionate God. That His laws reflect His compassion, and in fact, call His people to be compassionate. That He commands them to not simply, you know, don't just keep the law for the sake of it, but have compassion. Care for those who are downtrodden. Have compassion on those who are vulnerable. uh, Because he is a God who has compassion. 
Now, you could say the Lord's, some of the other Lord's primary concerns are his, our proper worship. He is concerned, very much concerned that they don't, Israel doesn't treat him like he's just another one of the gods like the world, right? One of the, the gods of the world. He's not like them. He is not like the idols. He is not like the pagan gods of the Canaanites. And so you don't worship him like he's a god of the, of the world. Don't worship him like he's a pagan god. Um, he's very concerned with that. But really, I think his, his law boils down to, to just four simple words. I guess it's five. Love God and love your neighbor. You can... Well, yeah, but the and, I don't know. It's five or four, whatever. <laughs> Kylie? I think it's interesting, too, where you, like, there's chapters in the Bible, and then, you know, only a couple weeks, months, days later, then they're Yeah. It does not take Israel very long, does it? Yeah. Even with, like, you know, like, sometimes, oh, if we could just have, like, a checkbox of what we're supposed to do, but if Israel has that, and we still, you know, don't have so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at all the laws, right, to read Leviticus especially, or to read Deuteronomy and be like, this is just overwhelming. Like, how are you supposed to remember all of this? Um but I think what it really boils down to is love God and love your neighbor. Right? All, of, all of the vast array of the laws given at Sinai and throughout the Old Testament, right, what it really boils down to is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Love God. That's really primary concern of his law is to teach his people to love him and in loving him and in worshiping they will become more like him all right you become what you worship you worship pagan gods you become like pagan gods that's why you can't worship god like you worship them because he's not the same so when you worship god you are transformed by that you are shaped by worship so when you come to the Lord's law, right, you could read it either as, here's this really long list of things that I'll never be able to keep, and it's so horrible and oppressive. Or you could read it as, I fall so far short of who God is. I am not like him. He is perfect and holy and beautiful, and I'm not. But I want to be like him. Right, his law is really showing us who he is and calling us to love him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it shows us what it will take for sinful humans to be able to come into God's presence. And it's a lot, which just shows us all the more how much Christ has done. That we have access to the Lord. We don't have to do rituals because the ritual's been done. Jonathan? Doesn't it seem kind of like God 
He, why does he give it knowing that they'll fail? He's pretty much already read the book. But why, right? If he knows they're going to fail, why give it to them? Why give the law to them? What's he teaching them? What's he teaching them? That they're not perfect. That they're not perfect, thus... They need someone. They need someone to be perfect on their behalf. He's teaching them that... He is perfect, and it's not a brag, right? Not in the sense that we would think of someone who's bragging because they're, they're trying to seem better than they actually are. God never brags. He simply is better and simply is perfect. And yet, he tells us his perfect law, but not so that we would then feel, you know, not to crush us, but to expose our sin so that he can then say, here's the path of salvation. And it's not through you. Oh. It's to show them grace. To show them mercy. Okay. Yeah, and it's another primary concern in his law, right? A lot of the laws, like the sacrificial system, is about God's mercy. It's showing, here's how sin will can be forgiven through bloodshed. Of course, it can't be bulls and goats and oxen, the very fact that it would have to be repeated year after year and, and day after day, all these sacrifices constantly, all that is teaching Israel is that this, if we, we can't keep on doing this for, for infinity. We can't sacrifice every bull and goat. If, that's, if it's not going to actually forgive our sins, then why are we doing this? Well, it's to point them to the fact that they need a better sacrifice. They need someone, they need a perfect sacrifice once and for all that never has to be done again. And, of course, it's Jesus. Um, so that's some of the big picture stuff about God's law, right? There's, there's primary concerns that are driving why there's these different kinds of laws. But what it really boils down to is, is the law of Moses is about God. It's about his character. It's about who is he. And that calls us to repent of our sins and to seek to follow him, to be like him. To love him. Not because we're strong enough, not because we're good enough, but because us coming at this from this side of the cross, right? We look back at Jesus. He has fulfilled the law as a mediator, which means the rewards for obedience are already ours. We're not, there's no more rewards to earn. And there's no more curses that we're afraid of. All that we're really doing and now is we want to be like the Lord. We, we love him. And so we keep his law out of love and out of gratitude. John? Yeah, um, I agree 100%. Galatians 3 says that, Tim, for as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. 
But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles of Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Yeah, Christ has become a curse for us. Are there any other final thoughts or questions? Now is a good time to hurl your tomatoes. No? Okay, well, let's pray, and then we will uh, get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for your law. It is perfect, Lord, as you are perfect and holy and good, and yet we confess that it exposes our sin. And we are not perfect, Lord. We are sinners. Please forgive us for the sake of Christ. And please help us, Lord, to love you and to seek to obey your laws, to be like you with your compassion, your justice, your love. Lord, teach us uh, and guide us as we worship you this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.